Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing I love about reading, and I love to read, is that when I was a child, all of my storybooks turned out right. Robin Hood, oh, he had an adjustable morality, but the poor really needed the money he stole from the rich. And the sheriff of Nottingham was no good anyway. Cinderella came out ahead of her stepsisters. Boy, I was glad about that. And the glass slipper fit her foot perfectly. And that prince was so handsome. And they lived happily ever after. But often real life is very different from our stories. The glass slipper in real life slips comfortably on the foot of the evil stepsister. And we find out Robin Hood has a numbered Swiss bank account. (laughs) Most of us long for justice and fairness to rule. And yet in our world, we see abuse of the helpless, exploitation of the poor and defenseless, the mockery and selfishness and suffering. While at the same time, the selfish and the cynical and the well-connected and the grasping live lives of callous consumption in a starving world, indifferent to the cries for justice and truth that virtually sits on their doorsteps. The rich steal even more from others in clever ways. And if they're caught, it seems they're given light sentences in country club prisons or community service. While the hungry poor in our society get years in harsh prisons for robbing a liquor store to feed their starving family. And God help you if you're a minority in that setting. That's one reason why I love the scriptures. Because the scriptures are so honest. They recognize the reality of life and our situations The hymn that we sang had that phrase, prone to wonder, W-A-N-D, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, partly because I look at my culture, I look at my society, I look at my world, and it's hard to keep from becoming discouraged, depressed, and cynical. Now, that was the struggle of the slipping saint who wrote Psalm 73. The inscription says it's a psalm of Asaph, who was on the temple staff. According to 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, he had been appointed by King David to be the chief musician. And it's interesting that in Psalm 73, he starts off with his conclusion. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's as if he's going to say, I'm going to tell you what happened to me, but I want you to remember this. God is good, always good. And then after stating this conclusion, he describes how he came to this conclusion. Here again from verse 2, as for me. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. 
For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their, their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens of common men. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. And from their callous hearts come iniquity, and evil conceits of their mind knows no limit. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the... Are you getting depressed? I read Psalm 73, and by about this time in the reading, I have all kinds of flashes from the newspapers and from the telecasts and from my experience in this world. And I say, this guy wrote contemporarily. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Now that's a major league pity party. And most of us have experienced at one time or another, if we are honest, that kind of questioning, that kind of doubting, that kind of argument with God. There are times when we probably would not say these things out loud, but we think them, we feel them. The psalmist's main symptom of spiritual sickness is envy. You see that in verse 2 and 3. But then anytime we start to envy, we can get into trouble. The Bible teaches that when a person walks according to God's principles and will, that person will prosper and be blessed. And if a person does not do so, he will not prosper. And that's the basis of some of the nonsense that the prosperity preachers are preaching. But most of us have observed life around us, and we see the righteous being afflicted, not prospering. And the ungodly seem to flourish. And the prosperity preacher says, well, you just don't have enough faith. So that adds guilt on top of the suffering. And the psalmist, Asaph, really is questioning, wondering about this moral contradiction. How can people who are so unconcerned about others, who have no room in their lives for God, how can they do so well when he is attempting to keep his heart and actions pure and he's faced with all kinds of trials and pressures? He's envious of the ungodly's prosperity. They're well-fed, verse 3 and 4. They're comfortably housed. They buy stock just before the stock goes up, or they get Starbucks at an IPO. They abuse their health, and yet they stay robust and tan, while the godly gets sick. And he often can't even pay their hospital bills. In my first church after seminary, there was a a man who worked as a day laborer on a farm in the area when he could find jobs. His car was a wreck. And the driver's side window would not go up. And Omer Tutter asked me one day, 
if I would go one Sunday afternoon visiting some friends of his who were a long ways away from God and Omar had a burden for them. We're driving through Kiwani, Illinois in a torrential Illinois rainstorm. It's pouring in this down window and Omar is sitting in the middle of the car driving. And he looks over at me and kind of smiles and he said, Preacher Bud, there ain't no shame in being poor, but it do get uncomfortable sometimes. Verses 6 to 9, the psalmist is riled. He's angered by the pride of these ungodly people. They don't even act humble. They give no thanks to God. They claim self-made success. Now, of course, if they fail, then it's God's fault. But if they succeed, they're self-made. They don't share significantly. That's not even in the picture. I read not too long ago in a newspaper of a billionaire who gave $200 million to his alma mater. And it made all the papers. And when I checked in the next Forbes magazine that came out, I discovered that $200 million from this man's personal fortune was 0.006% of his fortune. Such generosity. I become angry and cynical. Verse 10 to 12, the psalmist is irritated by their popularity. Everybody seems to adore these successful people. They read all the news they can get about them. They ignore the ugliest behavior on the part of these people because they're beautiful or they're famous or they're powerful or they're rich. Do you ever stand waiting in line at the grocery store and look at those magazines? I mean, oh, they're so wonderfully Never mind. The psalmist concludes, and a lot of us do, that the final word on the ungodly is success, verse 12. And the final word on the godly is futility, verse 13. A psalmist is slipping down the road to ruin and depression because his perception is distorted. It's not straight. He has what psychiatrists call Cognitive dissonance. He begins to overgeneralize, to see an event or events as a never-ending pattern, to, to begin to see everything through the negative focus until the rest of reality also becomes distorted. And then in verse 15 and 16, we see the psalmist catches balance. He knew something was wrong with his thinking. So do we when we think this way. He was truly troubled with the seeming success of the philosophy of materialism and self-gratification. He knows he must not spread it around among God's children because it's just not right. It may be a fact of life, but that doesn't make it right. I remember an ad on television sometime back where they advertised this questionable product, and then they said, This is the choice of 10 million Americans. Can 10 million Americans be wrong? And I shouted, yes! Because we see it around us all the time. Now, I know it's not much for him to say this. I will speak, I will speak thus. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. 
when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Now he catches his balance here. He knows there's something wrong with a philosophy of life that puts food on the table, but has no fellowship around that table. That gives a family a beautiful house to live in and no home to have in that house. That gives the mate and children everything except themselves and their unconditional love. There's something wrong with a culture like our culture that is physically rich and spiritually impoverished. That produces ugliness and cruelty and filth and garbage and calls it art and entertainment. That achieves an abounding gross national product by enslaving the poor and the ignorant and the minority. So what's the psalmist do? He tries to get his feet back on the rock. Look at verse 17. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. When I was a kid in summer camp, we used to sing a chorus with eternity's values in view. And that's what the psalmist is starting to do. He's starting to clue in and get the long view of things. In the middle of his doubts and his confusion and his envy, he takes the opportunity to go where God can meet him. Now, church, one of the dangers that we face when we struggle with doubts and confused thinking When God seems far away and life makes little sense, one of the things we do which is so stupid is we stay away from the house of God and God's people. We leave the Bible on the shelf gathering dust rather than seeking to gain our balance by communicating with integrity one another. And you might say, oh, if I shared my anger or my disillusionment, or my doubt with people at church, oh, they would reject me. No, they would share their doubts and their confusion and their struggles with you. We're in this together, folks. There's nothing new about this. Jeremiah, the great prophet of God, said, You're always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper, and why do all the faithless live at ease? That's the prophet, Jeremiah. Or Job said, why do the wicked leave on growing old and increasing in power? And on and on you find the witness of Scripture being honest. And we must be honest if we're going to deal with integrity with the struggles that we have periodically. I hope not all the time. Wisely, the psalmist does not isolate himself. He goes to the place of worship and instruction. He puts himself in the presence of other believers who can give him balance and objectivity and perspective and another viewpoint. And he sees, as a result, the unrighteous with a kind of renewed perception. Look at verses 18 following. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakens. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. 
with eternity's values in view. And he sees himself with a renewed perspective. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, it was senseless and ignorant, and I was like a brute beast. And a beast does not struggle with ethics or spiritual questions. A beast has appetites and wants to satisfy them. And I can see some things like that in our culture. Then the psalmist recognized how privileged and blessed he was. Before he viewed himself as an innocent sufferer who got nothing but abuse and frustration for all his efforts to be good and righteous. But now listen to the new understanding, verse 23 following. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my life. And my portion forever. The situation in the psalmist world has not changed. The psalmist has changed. Some years ago, it was a practice in this congregation to have a time when people would share current needs or current praises. And there was a fellow that sat right over here on the left side with his family. But one particular Sunday, he was sitting right there. Now, we're all creatures of habit. I can take attendance by looking at the pew that you usually sit in. But when he was sitting there, I thought, what you doing there? It came time for sharing, and he stood to his feet and said this. He was an executive with Western Union, and he said, I have moved many times professionally in my life, and each time my family has gone with me, and we have sometimes struggled to find a new home and a new setting. But now I am moving again, and what is different this time is I am not taking my family with me. Oh, no, I thought. Another home in trouble? Why hasn't he said anything to me? Then he went on. My doctor told me this week, I have three months to live. But before you get all upset about this, I need to tell you, since I became a believer three years ago, I am now standing on the rock, and the storm is roaring around me, but the rock is still holding. And he sat down. In very short months, they had to move in a hospital bed in his home. He went on hospice care and all the rest of this. His only son had a brand new baby. And that only son's baby was going to be baptized. And Dave MacArthur said, Pastor Bud, I would give anything to be able to be present for my first and only grandchild's baptism. We had some EMTs in the congregation, and one of them overheard it and said, Bud, If you don't think it will disrupt things too much, I can take care of that. 
And so we coordinated everything. And the Sunday that that little baby was baptized, just as the baptism was to begin, the double doors opened and down this center aisle came a gurney. And on that gurney was a dying man, emaciated, yellow, with a great smile. We baptized that baby, and afterwards, after I had introduced the child to the congregation, I took the baby over and laid him on Dave's chest. And Dave went like this, and I handed him the microphone. I didn't know what he'd say. And he said, People, the rock still holds. And that week he went to be with the Lord. You see, there is a perspective to life that goes far beyond what we read in our newspapers or see in the gossip columns or on our television. Yep. A friend of mine used to say all the time, Bud, there is no luggage rack on a hearse. And that puts things in perspective. So that at the end of life, instead of screaming and crying into eternity, we can say, the rock still holds. Now in a moment, we're going to have Holy Communion. And I would ask you now to join me by closing your eyes and simply answering for yourself before God some brief questions. Where are you right now on the path of your faith? What direction are you moving? Is your perspective on life narrowing or widening? Is your heart becoming bitter or better? Are you developing a cynical, critical spirit or an affirming, joyous spirit? And is that joy in Christ growing in spite of the externals of your life and our culture? Now is the time to gain eternity's values in view. Continue to speak to us, Lord, as we celebrate your communion.